you ask the typical person out on the street, the typical client, their interpretation of risk is not the same as how I'm in thinking about it in my mind. And so there is this disconnect between what the financial planning profession or industry is trying to quantify as risk and how clients are actually perceiving risk. And it's not always the same. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I'm your host, Sean Maslick, where it's our goal to dive into our relationships with money so that we can create a happy, healthy, and thriving relationship with it. To our returning listeners, thank you for joining us again. And to the new listeners, welcome. In this episode, we speak to Dr. John Grable, who is a certified financial planner and professor at the University of Georgia with an expertise in financial risk tolerance assessment, behavioral financial planning, and evidence-based financial planning. He's published over 150 peer-reviewed papers and co-authored four financial planning textbooks. In this episode, Dr. Grable shares his insights on the importance of understanding our risk tolerance. For many of us, We think we know our risk tolerance. However, according to his work and his research, many of us don't actually understand what our risk tolerance is, yet its implications affect all areas of our financial health. Dr. Grable really emphasizes how we all need to care about personal finances from an individual perspective, a society perspective, and a policy perspective because all of it impacts the financial health outcomes for you, me, and everybody else. Dr. Grable also shares some really interesting research that was counterintuitive to what I believed called the disappointment dilemma. Stay tuned to listen to how lowering your expectations might actually help your financial health in the long run. This was a fascinating episode that really blended the data side of risk tolerance but we also touched on many other elements of personal finances, such as how our emotions come into consideration when making financial decisions and how do those emotions mix with our decisions around risk tolerance. There are so many other fascinating conversations to be had in this episode. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. John Grable. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, as I've been exploring the, I guess you would say the the human side of money and looking at various pieces of research, having guests on the show, your name kept coming up as authors on several papers. So I am pleased to have you on the show so our listeners and myself can hear the insights that are roaming around in John's brain. 
Well, we'll see how this goes. I don't know how many thoughts are actually up here. So. <laughs> As I was preparing for today and just reading about you online and the type of research you've been doing, your background, I've seen that, yes, you've published many, many books, specifically in the financial planning realm, many pieces of research and personal finances, especially around what we'll talk about risk and risk tolerance. But it seems to me underneath all of this, kind of the underbelly of your approach to personal finance is a genuine concern for people's overall financial financial health. As a professor or a researcher, in your past, how have you noticed or witnessed firsthand the impacts that financial health, financial literacy, financial information can have on someone's life? That's probably the best summary of my entire career I've ever heard, actually. You know, I've always had a passion for personal finance, and that led me down this road of financial planning. But I think you're exactly right in terms of what is the purpose of financial planning? Why should people care about personal finance? Is it just this niche field of study? Who cares, essentially, is that question. And, you know, that's a question, by the way, that's asked across campuses, by policymakers, by my colleagues, right? And just, I'm way off on a tangent here, no, yeah. but there are many economists who say, hey, personal finance is simply the application of economic principles. If you know economics, you're good to go. We really don't even need to specialize in personal finance topics. So I obviously disagree with that. And one, one reason I disagree with that is I do think that personal finance can have a meaningful impact in the lives of folks and that that's really important. And to give you an example of what I mean by that is um, when I was working at another university, this was right during the, the Iraq war, a lot of turmoil was going on and where this other university was located. There's a big military base. It's an army base, probably the army base in the, in the United States. And a lot of these young people were coming back from Iraq. They were enrolling at the university. They would come to my personal finance courses. And, you know, they were learning and we were having a good time. But through the discussion of personal finance, those things like cash flow and net worth statements and checking your financial ratios, looking at your insurance, and your financial stability and your capacity, start to learn a lot about these soldiers who are coming back to the United States. And quickly, what I found is that personal finance is not just a standalone thing that researchers or financial planners do. It's almost a window into the life of people. And as an example, and I'll, I'll be quiet here in a second. But as an example, there was one service member who came back, came every day to class. And I don't even know how it came up. It probably, we were talking about housing options, renting versus buying, the, the ratios that mortgage companies use to qualify you. And it turns out that this service guy he couldn't answer any of the questions. He wasn't really engaged in the discussions. And it turns out he was homeless. And he was living in a U-Haul van or U-Haul truck, you know, those moving trucks. That's where he stayed every night. He didn't have a home. But he came to class. He showered at the gym. He ate 
on campus, but that's where he lived. And like, really? This cannot be happening to soldiers who are coming back. This is just unacceptable. And again, I use that as a story to give you an idea of how impactful personal finance, research, education, and just discussions can be what you're doing, because it can lead people to solutions. That person is no longer homeless. They're in a much better state now. And I'm not saying it's all personal finance, but because of those discussions, he was able to get help that I'm not sure he would have gotten help immediately. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that that answer and that story. And when we look at health outcomes in general, literacy, of course, helps, but our financial health is up there in terms of allowing us to do the daily functions that we need to survive. And this story really encapsulates that. I'm curious. So before the um, coming to academia, you were a financial planner, you worked for pension companies. So very very data focused, so to speak, or like an economist kind of perspective yeah. where you're looking at the numbers. How has your perspective or stance on personal finance evolved in the way that you teach it and the way that you embody it when you experience stories like this soldier? Because I can imagine that, yeah, he's learning from from you and your skill set, but I think there's a reciprocity occurring. Yeah, there absolutely is. One of the Highlights of my career has been hanging out with mental health experts and particularly marriage and family therapists. And it was just by serendipity. I didn't go looking for marriage and family therapists, but in doing some research, I came into contact with these folks who do not think about money the same way that I do. And often in the therapeutic world, the mental health world, money, personal finances, financial planning, it's not ever considered the presenting problem or the trigger of a problem. It's considered the outcome of an existing problem. So that's an interesting way to look at money from my perspective, because I see people arguing about money. That leads to divorce. It leads to conflict. It leads to all sorts of problems. But therapists don't always view the world that way. What was exciting for me is to kind of be talking to the therapeutic world and they're talking to me and sort of blending these two ideas of there is the hard, raw number, there's the data, but there's also the personal side to it. That's the relationship side to it. And you know what's dawned on me over my career? The money side, the numbers, the ratios, the time value of money formulas, that's actually a pretty small part of the personal finance discussion. And I can train pretty much anybody to do time value of money calculations. In fact, you probably don't even need training. You have a calculator, you can do it. The difficulty is taking somebody like me, who's very much quantitatively focused, data focused, a financial planner, and teaching me how to be more empathetic, how to be more relational, how to be thinking of the family as a system rather than as an outcome. So for me, it's been one of the greatest thrills is every day in my life as an academic, I'm learning and expanding and hopefully growing a little bit. But you're absolutely right. It's the personal side that really does matter. Yeah, I find your career fascinating in that you started in working with big pension funds like we talked about and which is sometimes the 
the cool, sexy part where finance data-driven people like, whoa, you're doing it. But yet it seems like, as you just explained, you started to to realize there's this whole other side to our, our relationship with money. My last question, and then I really do want to get into risk and risk tolerance, okay. but I appreciate how you started this. And I, I, I'm, I'm digressing from my question a little bit here, but we could have jumped right into the nuance of risk tolerance and sounded really intelligent and interesting, which is relevant intelligent or interesting information. But I appreciate talking about more of the why or the purpose of what we're doing. And I actually underlined here this meaningful impact that you said. So I, I think it's really important for all of us in this field to really understand why are we doing this in the end. It really comes through that there's a deeper meaning of this meaningful impact. So I appreciate that. But as you're talking, you, you said you're kind of, you're, you began to be curious about therapists, mental health professionals, marriage and family therapists. And then you started or helped co-found the Financial Therapy Association, which is all of that, bringing the two disciplines together. I'm curious because I think I speak for myself. We all have these aspirations of doing something different that's kind of on the razor's edge, which is different. And founding the FTA, Financial Therapy Association, with your background in the pension would be different in my books. What led you to be like, no, I need to do this? Oh, that's, you know, that was over a decade ago when some colleagues and I, we thought this is the direction to go. And I'll tell you, it was kind of, it was on the edge. It was kind of risky back in the day to, to take this word therapy that has so many contextual meanings and perceptions and link it with finance, financial planning, personal finance. And that made a lot of the people nervous. It still makes people nervous. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love it, actually, <laughs> because it's it's pushing the boundaries and making people think, not just falling back into standard standard thoughts and actions. But what is it that we do as financial planners or advisors? We are not mental health experts. We're not, we are not therapists, but we do apply or should be applying many of the therapeutic techniques, the models, the theories to our work with clients. And what I found is we don't do that in the training of financial planners, financial advisors. It doesn't occur in business schools. I mean, I have an economics degree. I have an MBA. At no point did anybody actually give me any instruction, any guidance on how to actually work with a real human being. It was just assumed if I knew my numbers and I was a good financial planner, and I had some communication skill. That's all I needed. They can train me in the sales portion. The reality is that's not enough. And so the answer to your question is, if you go over into a social work department or a marriage and family therapy department, those students are learning about methods and models that they can use when working with clients. If you go to a financial planning academic program, that does not exist. We do not train students in particular models of practice. We train students in how to do calculations. Back in the day, I just had this idea. Why don't we learn from our therapist friends who have models, techniques, evidence-based practice, and apply that to financial planning and see what happens? You know, it's still, it's still evolving, but you know, if the research, there are actual papers now that show financial planners how to do evidence-based financial planning. So that was re really the, my driving reason to get involved. Well, I'm grateful you did. 
as a financial planner myself. But three years ago, I found the FTA and I went to my first in-person conference last fall and it was, it was wonderful. Great. Ten years ago, you went on that razor's edge to combine these two professions. You just said that traditionally, financial planning research, like actual uh, evidence-based research in financial planning wasn't really a thing. You do research now for the CFP Board of Standards, is that correct? I've done some work in the area, like client psychology with CFP Board. I was a co-editor of Financial Planning Review, which is housed or homed at CFP Board in the United States. Okay. No longer doing that, but that's, I was doing that. Okay, I'm in Canada, so CFP Board is a little different for us. But you, you're on this razor's edge to form the FTA. What's happening on the razor's edge now to really integrate more of this human side into the CFP examination? where we can go to economic schools or MBA, like you said, and not only learn about calculations, but these methods and models. And so it, it is transformational, at least in the United States. CFP board, and you know they do set really sort of the standards for financial planning in the U.S., even for those who are not CFP professionals. They, it's kind of embedded in the training that occurs. So CFP board, maybe two years ago, decided that this notion of client psychology is something that's really important. Now, there's no way in the world CFP board is going to use the term financial therapy, mental health. They, they do not want to go there. But the fact that they at least acknowledged psychological issues related to money and personal finance is a huge breakthrough. So the world is you know, slowly moving that way. And to me, I'm I'm excited to at least stand on the side and cheer it on. I get I can feel the excitement from you. This is my observation is that you you really at some point became clear on this why are you doing what you're doing? Is this to use your words again, meaningful impact? And um yeah, I just think it's a good lesson for all of us that I assume you've been doing this for a while, but you can still have that big smile when you're really in alignment with that underlying why, in your case, providing this yeah. meaningful impact. I mean, it is why I do love financial planning. And there are lots of great professions out there, but financial planning is unique in that you're able to help individuals and families. And you can tangibly see the help. You can measure it. And you want to know what? On the other side, you can make a, a decent living helping other people. And I'm not opposed to that. So financial planners can do well while they're helping the world. And I don't know too many professions, maybe physicians, the medical profession can say the same thing, but there aren't a lot of professions that have that win-win mm. for the advisor and the client. And just to elaborate on that, as you said earlier, this is the financial planning, personal finance can be a, this is your words, a window into the life of people. Yeah. And I think as we become, or we as financial planners embrace the human side of money more, we can help just shine that mirror for people to have a window into themselves to get to them, know themselves more. Because as we both know, where our insecurities or our emotions around money lie a story for us to, I guess, maybe get to know ourselves on a more intimate level. Absolutely. So at the University of Georgia, you run the Performance Lab. Is that correct? The title? Financial Planning Performance Lab. Isn't that okay. a fancy name? Just <laughs> a name for my lab, which is actually a pretty small space, but I have a little lab space, yes. A little lab space. Okay. 
From what I understand from the internet, it studies decision-making process of people when it comes to money. What have you been most interested in studying as of late that really ties into the why behind your lab? And why do you think listeners should really, I guess, be interested in some of this wonderful research you're doing? Yeah, well, I hope it's wonderful research. It's Again, it's probably on the edge a little bit. And so there's a guy in Philadelphia who claims that I created this word, and I'll take credit for it if he says so, but physiological economics. And essentially, what is that? That is trying to understand the physiological and the psychological reactions clients and advisors have when they're dealing with money, talking about money, doing financial planning. They're engaged in financial planning. So my lab is a little different than your typical university lab. We, If you came to campus, I'd stick you in this room and I would hook you up to machines that are measuring your EEG, your brain waves, your sweat production, your heart rate variability, all of these physiological measures and put you through experiments or treatments or just maybe even talk about money with you and see what's happening not only in the brain, but the physical reactions that you may be experiencing while doing that. Again, I think one of your questions is, that's nice, that's exciting, but who really cares? Maybe that should be your question. This was, again, a few years ago. The pandemic really caused trouble in putting brainwave measures on people. It's It slowed that kind of research <laughs> down. But prior to the pandemic, what we found in one really interesting study so if you have a married couple and they're, they're, they're your clients, if the physiological reaction of the clients to the advisor is matched, what we would call congruent, so they're, they're responding similarly to the advisor in terms of sweat production or heart rate variability or skin temperature, those clients are much, much, much more likely to implement your recommendations as an advisor. If the clients are incongruent, meaning one's totally with you, but the other's like, yeah, maybe not, very unlikely that those clients are going to follow through with your recommendations. So as an advisor, you may be working with clients and you're giving great recommendations, you're nudging, they're giving you nonverbal cues, yes, I'm with you, they're nodding, and then they do nothing. It could very well be a psychophysiological reaction that you're not even seeing as an advisor. So that's sort of what we're trying to do in the lab is trying to identify some of those triggers and then how to give tools to advisors that they can see what's happening and maybe react to it. I mean, you're, you're obviously, Sean, you're not going to put in a brainwave measure on your clients. <laughs> But there are ways to kind of get signals of the client's physiological reaction. And again, I don't think advisors are thinking of it, nor should they have thought of it. Then they've never been been exposed to it, but it is happening. Yeah, I think this is fantastic. And like, yeah, we're not going to put on the caps. However, there is a common struggle amongst many coupleships, whether it's in a financial planning office or at home, is like, why don't we see this to the eye to eye or, or why can't we save or this incongruency that you spoke about? Yes, yes. 
it seems to me your research is showing that, hey, there's nothing wrong with us, our coupleship. This is actually normal. It's based in our physiology. And I think that's, I guess, a breath of fresh air for advisors is that it's not that their clients are not wanting to implement or couples aren't wanting to implement. I think it speaks to this other issue that there's a whole level of money, the emotional side that can help address. I think that's where some of this can go is to help address those underlying feelings. Right. And so traditionally, financial advisors, financial planners have not been exposed to how you would deal with that. So this is the role of financial therapy in my in my situation. So I'm going to give you an embarrassing story here, okay, to tell you how inadequately prepared I was as a financial planner. I was meeting with a, these, a married couple, and I was younger. And today I would know what to do, but at the time I didn't. And I think we were talking retirement. They were obviously older than I was. And one of those clients in this couple starts crying in my office. Well, I'm not prepared for that. I mean, I'm prepared to show them some graphs mm -hmm. and charts. And let's invest. I didn't know what to do. And it's only years later that, that a therapist said, you know, you should always have a box of Kleenex in your office, on your desk all the time. And you hand them a Kleenex and let them deal with it. Okay, you're laughing. Everybody on the podcast is laughing. Like, obviously, that's so true. But in my MBA program, nobody told me yeah. that, right? So what's obvious to a therapist or somebody who's a little more empathetic than maybe a data-driven person, that's an obvious way to go. For me, it was not obvious. I had to learn that. And so there are things you can learn. If, if I think that my clients might not be congruent, one thing I can do immediately is have the clients share with each other a story or two about money from their childhood or money from growing up. Total diversion from a, what a financial planner would ever do. I would never have done that in practice. I mean, I, I would feel odd, awkward. It would be weird. Today, it wouldn't be weird because that's a way to help the clients understand each other better and maybe gain, gain congruency. Mm -hmm. Instead of us, I guess, being defensive to what the other spouse is saying and thinking something's wrong with them, doing that just helps facilitate some empathy amongst each other. Yeah, or even we do notice, because in, in one of the lab spaces, we've got the, the mirrors, so I can sit behind the mirror and watch what's happening. And we often use younger financial planners who are in training. And it's a natural reaction that you, as the advisor, you're responding to the client who's responding to you. And so you tend to kind of over time, if you're not on your toes, kind of isolate that, that other partner who's not as responsive. And that's exactly mm -hmm. the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. right? So just even being aware of those little, those little things where you're not being congruent with the clients as a couple. Yeah, wow. Well, that, that's great work that you're doing in the lab. Part of me just wants to keep going on this, but I know you've done a lot of research on risk tolerance. And I think risk is important to discuss because it goes in alignment with what we're talking about. And what I mean by that, I guess my segue is risk creates fear, maybe some sort of greed, anxiety, stress. I guess it stimulates these unseen emotions in us. So I think this is where the financial therapy really can come in to help to talk to those parts of us that are scared. 
But why did you start? So I'm kind of painting a picture of your, your career here. And really on the lots of focus with the emotional sides, bringing the FDA together with your work here. Where did the interest in risk come from? Why did you really start focusing on risk and risk tolerance? Yeah, so this would have been in the 1990s, the mid-1990s. And had I known half of what I know now, or even a quarter, I wouldn't be here today. I'd probably be doing financial planning. Back in the day, I had a married couple come to me and the stock market was doing well. And what was happening is the stock market at this time was doing well. Interest rates are actually falling. So the bond market is doing well, but the yields were dropping. And this client had been in the 1980s, they just bought bonds and did pretty well. So their income is going down or their unearned income is going down. They're talking to all their friends and neighbors who are making tons of money in the stock market. So they decide they're going to jump into the stock market too. So we do, we meet, I have them fill out questionnaires. I do all of the data intake, everything I was trained to do, have them sign off the acknowledgement and I start investing their money based on what they told me they were comfortable doing. So it just turns out that we couldn't have chosen the worst possible time because over the next five months, the markets go down, 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 down until finally in month five, one of the spouses calls and, and they were, and this person was calling me at least every other week, panicked because their, their account values mm -hmm. go down. And by the fifth month, this one gave up, said, just sell it, just sell it. I'm done. We're going back to just the bank. I mean, I begged them. I pleaded with them. I said, no, 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 you've got to hang in there. You told me you, you were willing to take this level of risk and we have a long time horizon. Hang in there. They just, they sold out and you know what happened in, in month six. You don't even need to know the year, but in month six, the markets went up and went up and went up all the way until 1999. And not only did they sell at the wrong time, they left themselves a huge hole that they never recovered from. And so it was at that moment, I just said, I have to figure this out. And I do like data. And I like the research part much more than actually meeting with clients. So that's what led me into a PhD program. I needed to understand why did those clients lie to me? They were lying to me. They were not maliciously lying to me. They just were hedging their answers based on what they thought I wanted to hear. Mm. They were telling me what they hoped to happen, not actually what they would do if they were faced with losses. And at the time, there really were not a lot of good risk assessments, risk tolerance assessments. And so eventually I went off and that's how I ended up doing most of my work in risk tolerance. Those, that, that one client, I needed to figure out what was going on and what did I do wrong. So did you figure it out? I am still figuring it out. I've yet to have the aha moment. Other than I did find out, again, dealing with the therapists, and this is a shock, but your clients, if you're a financial planner, your clients are lying to you. It never dawned on me that you would lie to me when I'm trying to work in your best interest. And maybe lying's the wrong word, but they're, they're not fully disclosing everything that I need to know in order to do a fiduciary responsibility for them. So I'm, I, no, I, I've not figured it out totally, but I'm, 
I hope either before I retire or die, at least have 90% of that. <laughs> well, you're well on the path. And so for listeners ta- uh, listening who might not be financial planners, right? let's talk about like why risk matters in our financial lives. And then you talked about these risk tolerance questionnaires. How do financial planners capture our perceived risk? And then can you just, what you've figured out so far is why are we, your words, lying to our advisors? What's happening underneath? So we just finished one study where we looked at, we looked at Twitter data, and then we also looked at research data and did a, a basically a word comparison analysis. And what we found is that people like me and you, when we think of risk, we think of it as a variance of returns or variability or something that's quantifiable. And so we're not as scared of the word risk. You ask the typical person out on the street, the typical client, their interpretation of risk is not the same as how I'm in thinking about it in my mind. They are exactly like you said. It brings up images of loss, fear, dread. And so there is this disconnect between what the financial planning profession or industry is trying to quantify as risk and how clients are actually perceiving risk. And it's not always the same. We do need as advisors to be on the same form or the same platform as our clients at least understand where they're coming from in terms of their fear. As you're saying, we're trying to quantify this risk. And we have these risk assessments that you spoke about. And really, if you think about it, we've been talking about how important financial, like personal finance is to our our overall well-being and health. Someone shows up, does a risk tolerance questionnaire that really is influencing how much they're going to save and how much compounded growth they're going to actually get. Not all, but largely based on this risk assessment. So maybe can you now discuss like, Again, for those people who might have just whipped through the risk assessment, what would you advise to clients who are listening who might need to go back to the risk assessment? How important is that document? And how can we maybe catch ourselves, even if we're lying to ourselves or not lying, like you said, but like being overconfident or or whatever it is that you found in your research? And we do find overconfidence and underconfidence. It's not always the overconfidence side. But yeah, so under Canadian, U.S., Australia, New Zealand, pretty much European law, financial planners, advisors are required by law to measure the risk tolerance of their clients. So that essentially means they must measure how willing the client is to take risk. So it's it's by law, it's mandated. And so there has to be some, some proof that the advisor did that. As of today, that is that risk tolerance questionnaire that you as the client filled out. So what we know is the vast majority of advisors have no systematic way of taking that score from the quiz or the questionnaire and actually putting it into a portfolio. My observation, you you really did some hand motions and hesitation when you said that. I, I feel like there was something there. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. Um, Yes, you're picking up on my my body language. Essentially, what advisors are doing is they're they're having the client fill out the questionnaire. They look at it. The advisor then files it away in case a regulator shows up and says, I want to see the proof of the assessment. So that's what happens. But if you over 
estimate the risk that you're willing to take, that does open the advisor up for an opportunity to maybe be more aggressive than you're truly comfortable with, which can lead to losses, just like my client couple. On the other side, if you're like too shy or you don't want to look like a risk taker, like, oh, I don't, or the markets are down and you don't really want to look like you're a sensation seeker. So you, you answer too conservatively. That can be almost worse because the advisor is going to have to be restrained in how they invest your assets or make recommendations. So you might not reach your objectives in terms of a rate of return, given the risk that you tell them. So you should be, as a client, totally honest, do the best you can, and don't withhold information from an advice mm -hmm. that would be useful. Let me just put it taken aside here. There are good questionnaires and there are bad questionnaires. As a client, you will probably never know. How would you know? You're, you're trusting the advisor or the firm that they've chosen the best questionnaire. I'm personally doubtful that the majority of questionnaires that are being used in the profession are of quality standards. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of the majority of them. So for a listener listening with that skeptical view, what can they do to help themselves? Just because this is so important. Like you said, you can yeah. underinvest, overinvest, take on too much risk. From a client perspective, it's difficult. But from an advisor perspective, and that's where I spend the bulk of my time is trying to figure out how an advisor can tune their practice to be better. And this is, you asked a little while ago, have I made any major breakthroughs, mental breakthroughs of my own? And there is one. I don't think a single risk tolerance score is enough. It can never be enough. It, it was always thought that if I measure you accurately, that one number is going to be good. And I've kind of pulled away from that. Today, I'm all about risk profiling instead of risk tolerance. And so what's the difference? You have a risk-taking profile, and that consists of your willingness to take risk, your preferences about taking risk, your perceptions of risk, your capacity to take risk, and other factors, your knowledge, your experience. All of these combine into a profile. Of that profile, that risk tolerance is one element describing your profile. So today, I'm all about risk profiling and creating a better profile of you as a client than just a single number and tying that number with my professional judgment. So that's the world I'm in in 2023 is really trying to refine what it means to have a risk profile. Yeah, that, I think that a more, if you want yeah, to call holistic. it, I guess, holistic view. Yeah. And, and is that how risk capacity would be part of that risk profile? Yeah. I think you can break it into three components. You walk into my office, you're my client. You've got an objective. It's to retire in 25 years and you want to make $100,000 a year. I can do those calculations. To me, that's step one. That's your risk need. What rate of return does Sean need to, you know, get in order to reach that objective? It's very quantifiable. Number two, what is Sean's ability to take that risk? And this is where issues of capacity come in or ability. Does Sean have a good income? Does Sean have assets? Does my client have insurance? 
a baseline level of insurance? Is there an ability to take the risk? And if there's a loss, handle the loss. So that's stage two. And by the way, stage one and stage two better match. If they don't match, then we need to start over and and go back and revisit. But let's say they match. That takes me to stage three, which is, I would call it, along with Dr. Amy Hubble, your behavioral loss tolerance, which is, are you willing to take risk? How do you perceive risk? What are your preferences? What's your knowledge? What's your experience? And then that becomes sort of a nudge factor. If you have lots of experience, you're a risk taker, and you're very knowledgeable, I might be able to nudge you up closer to that higher rate of return that links back to the risk need. If you're a total novice, you're totally scared, you would prefer to have your money in the bank, that's a nudging factor the other way. I might have to pull you back a little bit in terms of that risk need. And it's these three elements, that need, the ability, and this behavioral loss tolerance that I think I'm hopeful will be the future that you're going to start to see in five years, maybe. Wow, that that it just feels so much better than <laughs> a single assessment. Yes, that that's wonderful work. Well, I, I hope to see it in a, in five years. <laughs> I hope it's. I'm starting to see it now, but as an advisor, there's really only one firm that I'm even aware of in the U.S., Canada that's doing anything that I would call risk profiling-ish, sort of risk profiling. None none of them do the three elements that I was talking about. So that's why I'm saying five years. Maybe there'll be new firms Mm -hmm. emerging. The problem is I've never been smart enough to monetize any of this, but but I'm sure somebody out there will monetize this. Well, you're you're providing the the research so that other people can flourish in their own lives. You're rich, exactly. (laughs) Your research on the disappointment dilemma made me reread it and shocked me every time I read the results. People have always said, take or decrease your uh, expectations so that if the you know results don't come, you'll be you won't be so disappointed. But your research is totally, I guess, contrary to that. Can you explain to the listeners why we should increase our expectations so that we can be happier? <laughs> Yeah, this this all started by visiting casinos, actually. And so I'm not a big gambler, but I, I would play a slot machine and I would feel, and I'd lose, obviously, and I would feel terrible by it. I mean, I'd really feel terrible. And by the way, I'd, I'd lose like $25. <laughs> but I would then go over to a restaurant in Las Vegas and spend $100 and have zero reaction to Spending $100 on a hamburger, are you serious? <laughs> Lose $25 on a slot machine and my entire day is lost. And again, like you, I've always been told, oh, to avoid disappointment, decrease your expectations. And what we found is, I'm, I'm not saying that you should go out and increase your expectations, yeah. but what we did find is that people across the board, not in, just in gambling, who had higher expectations to begin with, experienced much lower levels of disappointment, which explains why I felt terrible losing $25 at a casino. I went in with really low expectations. I walked in, I'm going to lose this. And when I lost it, I felt even worse because my expectations were low and I met my expectations. It seems to be some sort of a mental strategy 
that real risk takers, those who are successful in taking risks, set a much higher level of expectation in investing, gambling, starting businesses, being an entrepreneur. And I, I would just think looking at you, we've never met personally, but you are an entrepreneur. Your expectations of success of what you're doing are probably, if I measured them, pretty high. And your level of disappointment when things don't happen exactly the way you wanted are not as high as for me, who sets really low expectations <laughs> and really, and I, and I'm disappointed all the time. <laughs> I'm trying to change, but it's probably embedded in me. Oh, well, John, there's so many areas that I want to go, even from that answer, but I want to respect your time. Thank you. So I have so many percolating questions. We'll have to do a round two. That would actually, that would be really fun. It would be, um, there's the, the entire area of risk tolerance assessment is pretty amazing. And I love how you are exposing advisors and clients and regular folks to the notion of well-being is not just a physical, it's not just a mental, it's a, it's a financial element too. It's, you have to look at your whole life holistically and that all of these elements comprise who you are and how you're feeling and your level of wellness. So I love what you're doing and I appreciate the F word uh, <laughs> podcast and all, and all you're doing out there. Well, thank you so much. And uh, well, people can stay tuned for uh, the second part then at some point in the future. If people are interested in finding more about your research, your work, where's your online presence? So I'm terrible at online presence, but <laughs> it's go to FPP. So financial planning performance, fpplab.org or .com. You can find, I think you can find all of the papers I've written since starting my career. So I've tried to archive them all there and that, that would probably be the best place to start. I did find them there. So great. Well, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for tuning in. If you're still listening to this, I assume you enjoyed the episode. So thank you. I would like to ask you a favor now. If you could head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, that would greatly help as it helps bring wonderful guests like Dr. Grable. Until next week, have yourself a great one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.